0: Book two sections twenty four through twenty five of King Cole. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. King Cole by Upton Sinclair. Book two The Serfs of King Cole. Section twenty four. The camp marshal of North Valley had been agitated to such an extent that he could not stay in his chair all the harassments of his troubled career had come pouring into his mind. He had begun pacing the floor, and was talking away, regardless of whether Hal listened or not. A camp full of lousy wops! They can't understand any civilized language. They've only one idea in the world, to shirk every lick of work they can, to fill up their cars with slate and rock and blame it on some other fellow, and go off to fill themselves with booze, They won't work fair, they won't fight fair, they fight with a knife in the back. And you agitators, with your sympathy for them, why the hell do they come to this country unless they like it better than their own?" Hal had heard this question before, but they had to wait for the automobile, and, being sure that he was an agitator now, he would make all the trouble he could. The reason is obvious enough, he said. Isn't it true that the GFC employs agents abroad to tell them of the wonderful pay they get in America? Well, they get it, don't they? Three times what they ever got at home. Yes, but it doesn't do them any good. There's another fact which the GFC doesn't mention, that the cost of living is even higher than the wages. Then, too, they're led to think of America as a land of liberty, They come hoping for a better chance for themselves and their children, but they find a camp marshal who's off in his geography, who thinks the Rocky Mountains are somewhere in Russia. "'I know that line of talk,' exclaimed the other. "'I learned to wave the starry flag when I was a kid. But I tell you, you've got to get coal mined, and it isn't the same thing as running a Fourth of July celebration.' Some church people make a law they shan't work on Sunday, and what comes of that? They have thirty-six hours to get soused in, and so they can't work on Monday. Surely there's a remedy, Cotton. Suppose the company refused to rent buildings to saloon keepers. Good God, you think we haven't tried it? They go down to Pedro for the stuff, and bring back all they can carry, inside them and out and if we stop that, then our hands move to some other camps where they can spend their money as they please. No, young man, when you have such cattle, you have to drive them, and it takes a strong hand to do it, a man like Peter Harrigan. If there's to be any coal, if industries to go on, if there's to be any progress, we have that in our song, laughed Hal, breaking into the camp marshal's discourse he keeps them a roll, that merry old soul, the wheels of industry, a roll and a roll for his pipe and his bowl and his college faculty." "'Yes,' growled the marshal, "'it's easy enough for you smart young chaps to make verses while you're living at ease on the old man's bounty. But that don't answer any argument. Are you college boys ready to take over his job?' these Democrat politicians that come in here, talking fool-talk about liberty, making labor laws for these wops, I begin to understand, said Hal. You object to the politicians who pass the laws, you doubt their motives, and so you refuse to obey. But why didn't you tell me sooner you were an anarchist? Anarchist, cried the marshal. Me, an anarchist? That's what an anarchist is, isn't it? Good God, if that isn't the limit! You come here stirring up the men, a union agitator, or whatever you are, and you know that the first idea of these people, when they do break loose, is to put dynamite in the shafts and set fire to the buildings. Do they do that? There was surprise in Hal's tone. Haven't you read what they did in the last big strike? That dough-faced old preacher John Edstrom could tell you. He was one of the bunch. No, said Hal, you're mistaken. Edstrom has a different philosophy. But others did, I've no doubt. And since I've been here, I can understand their point of view entirely. When they set fire to the buildings, it was because they thought you and Alec Stone might be inside. The marshal did not smile. They want to destroy the properties, continued Hal. "'because that's the only way they can think of "'to punish the tyranny and greed of the owners. "'But, Cotton, suppose someone were to put a new idea into their heads. "'Suppose someone were to say to them, "'Don't destroy the properties. Take them.' "'The others stared. "'Take them. So that's your idea of morality. "'It would be more moral than the method "'by which Peter got them in the beginning.' "'What method is that?' demanded the marshal, with some appearance of indignation. "'He paid the market price for them, didn't he?' "'He paid the market price for politicians. Up in Western City I happened to know a lady who was a school commissioner when he was buying school lands from the State, lands that were known to contain coal. He was paying three dollars an acre, and everybody knew they were worth three thousand. "'Well,' said Cotton, "'If you don't buy the politicians, you wake up some fine morning "'and find that somebody else has bought them. "'If you have property, you have to protect it.' "'Cotton,' said Hal, "'you sell old Peter your time, "'but surely you might keep part of your brains, "'enough to look at your monthly paycheck "'and realize that you, too, are a wage slave, "'not much better than the miners you despise.' "'The others smiled.' My check might be bigger, I admit, but I've figured over it, and I think I have an easier time than you agitators. I'm top dog, and I expect to stay on top. Well, Cotton, on that view of life, I don't wonder you get drunk now and then. A dog fight with no faith or humanity anywhere. Don't think I'm sneering at you. I'm talking out of my heart to you. I'm not so young, nor such a fool, that I haven't had the dog-fight aspect of things brought to my attention. But there's something in a fellow that insists he isn't all dog. He has at least a possibility of something better. Take these poor underdogs, sweating inside the mountain, risking their lives every hour of the day and night to provide you and me with coal to keep us warm, to keep the wheels of industry a roll. END OF SECTION TWENTY-FOUR SECTION TWENTY-FIVE These were the last words Hal spoke. They were obvious enough words, yet when he looked back upon the coincidence it seemed to him a singular one. For while he was sitting there, chatting, it happened that the poor underdogs inside the mountain were in the midst of one of those experiences which make the romance and terror of coal-mining. One of the boys who were employed underground, in violation of the child labor law, was in the act of bungling his task. He was a Spragger, whose duty it was to thrust a stick into the wheel of a loaded car to hold it, and he was a little chap, and the car was in motion when he made the attempt. It knocked him against the wall and so there was a load of coal rolling down grade, pursued too late by half a dozen men. Gathering momentum, it whirled round a curve and flew from the track, crashing into timbers and knocking them loose. With the timbers came a shower of coal dust, accumulated for decades in these old workings, and at the same time came an electric light wire, which, as it touched the car, produced a spark. And so it was that Hal, chatting with the marshal, suddenly felt, rather than heard, a deafening roar. He felt the air about him turn into a living thing which struck him a mighty blow, hurling him flat upon the floor. The windows of the room crashed inward upon him in a shower of glass, and the plaster of the ceiling came down on his head in another shower. When he raised himself, half-stunned, He saw the marshal, also on the floor. These two conversationalists stared at each other with horrified eyes. Even as they crouched there came a crash above their heads, and half the ceiling of the room came toward them, with a great piece of timber sticking through. All about them were other crashes, as if the end of the world had come. They struggled to their feet, and, rushing to the door, flung it open just as a jagged piece of timber shattered the sidewalk in front of them. They sprang back. "'Into the cellar!' cried the marshal, leading the way to the back stairs. But before they had started down these stairs, they realized that the crashing had ceased. "'What is it?' gasped Hal as they stood. "'Mine explosion!' said the other, and after a few seconds they ran to the door again. THE FIRST THING THEY SAW WAS A VAST PILLAR OF DUST AND SMOKE RISING INTO THE SKY ABOVE THEM. IT SPREAD BEFORE THEIR DAZED EYES UNTIL IT MADE NIGHT OF EVERYTHING ABOUT THEM. THERE WAS STILL A RAIN OF LIGHTER DEBRIS PATTERING DOWN OVER THE VILLAGE. AS THEY STARED AND GOT THEIR WITS ABOUT THEM, REMEMBERING HOW THINGS HAD LOOKED BEFORE THIS, THEY REALIZED THAT THE SHAFT HOUSE OF NUMBER ONE HAD DISAPPEARED. "'Blown up, by God!' cried the marshal, and the two ran out into the street, and looking up saw that a portion of the wrecked building had fallen through the roof of the jail above their heads. The rain of debris had now ceased, but there were clouds of dust which covered the two men black. The clouds grew worse, until they could hardly see their way at all, and with the darkness there fell silence which, after the sound of the explosion and the crashing of debris, seemed the silence of death. For a few moments Hal stood dazed. He saw a stream of men and boys pouring from the breaker, while from every street there appeared a stream of women, women old, women young, leaving their cooking on the stove, their babies in the crib, with their older children screaming at their skirts, They gathered in swarms about the pit-mouth, which was like the steaming crater of a volcano. Cartwright, the superintendent, appeared, running toward the fan-house. Cotton joined him, and Hal followed. The fan-house was a wreck, the giant fan lying on the ground a hundred feet away, its blades smashed. Hal was too inexperienced in mine matters to get the full significance of this but he saw the marshal and the superintendent stare blankly at each other, and heard the former's exclamation, "'That does for us!' Cartwright said not a word, but his thin lips were pressed together, and there was fear in his eyes. Back to the smoking pit-mouth the two men hurried, with Hal following. Here were a hundred, two hundred women, crowded, clamoring questions all at once, They swarmed about the marshal, the superintendent, the other bosses, even about Hal, crying hysterically in Polish and Bohemian and Greek. When Hal shook his head, indicating that he did not understand them, they moaned in anguish or shrieked aloud. Some continued to stare into the smoking pit-mouth. Others covered the sight from their eyes, or sank down upon their knees, sobbing, praying with uplifted hands. Little by little Hal began to realize the full horror of a mine disaster. It was not noise and smoke and darkness, nor frantic wailing women. It was not anything above ground, but what was below in the smoking black pit. It was men, men whom Hal knew, whom he had worked with and joked with, whose smiles he had shared, whose daily life he had come to know. Scores, possibly hundreds of them. They were down here under his feet, some dead, others injured, maimed. What would they do? What would those on the surface do for them? Hal tried to get to Cotton to ask him questions, but the camp-marshal was surrounded, besieged. He was pushing the women back, exclaiming, "'Go away! Go home!' "'What? Go home?' they cried when their men were in the mine? They crowded about him closer, imploring, shrieking. "'Get out!' he kept exclaiming. "'There's nothing you can do! There's nothing anybody can do yet! Go home! Go home!' He had to beat them back by force to keep them from pushing one another into the pit-mouth. Everywhere Hal looked were women in attitudes of grief, standing rigid, staring ahead of them as if in a trance, sitting down, rocking to and fro, on their knees with faces uplifted in prayer, clutching their terrified children about their skirts. He saw an Austrian woman, a pitiful, pale young thing with a ragged gray shawl about her head, stretching out her hands and crying, Mein Mann! Mein Mann! Presently she covered her face, and her voice died into a wail of despair. "'Oh, mein Mann! Oh, mein Mann!' She turned away, staggering about like some creature that has received a death wound. Hal's eyes followed her. Her cry, repeated over and over incessantly, became the leitmotif of this symphony of horror. He had read about mine disasters in his morning newspaper— BUT HERE A MIND DISASTER BECAME A THING OF HUMAN FLESH AND BLOOD. THE UNENDURABLE PART OF IT WAS THE UTTER IMPOTENCE OF HIMSELF AND OF ALL THE WORLD. THIS IMPOTENCE BECAME CLEARER TO HIM EACH MOMENT, FROM THE EXCLAMATIONS OF COTTON AND OF THE MEN HE QUESTIONED. IT WAS MONSTROUS, INCREDIBLE, BUT IT WAS SO. THEY MUST SEND FOR A NEW FAN, THEY MUST WAIT FOR IT TO BE BROUGHT IN. They must set it up and get it into operation. They must wait for hours after that while smoke and gas were cleared out of the mine passages of the mine. And until this had been done, there was nothing they could do, absolutely nothing. The men inside the mine would stay. Those who had not been killed outright would make their way into the remoter chambers and barricade themselves against the deadly after-damp. They would wait, without food or water, with air of doubtful quality. They would wait and wait, until the rescue crew could get to them. End of section 25